Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading is John 18, verses 12 through 27. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door, and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This is God's word. Thank you, Lily. It's always uh, special to get to preach VBS week with a backdrop like this. This is incredible. I really, I'm, this is just amazing. I'm uh, really impressed with all the hard work that went, went into putting this together this week. Well, as we open John's gospel again this morning, would you pray with me and ask that the Lord would move and that he would open our eyes to see his face and our ears to hear his voice. God, we are blessed and grateful to be among friends this morning, to be gathered in this place together alongside those whom we call brothers and sisters. And we know that it is by your grace that we are here, that we are united, and that we are united under your gospel. As we open uh, the book of John this morning, we pray that you would give us great confidence in your love for us, a great confidence in the gospel hope that we have because of your son's love and sacrifice for us. We ask these things, Lord, as we open this book. We ask that you would move in the name of your son. Amen. When it was built, the RMS Titanic was considered practically unsinkable, as I'm sure you know. The ship's designers had developed innovations that would allow it to take damage without being sunk. So advertisements for the Titanic claimed that she was the safest ocean liner ever built, in addition to being the most luxurious. Evidently, When word of the Titanic's run-in with an iceberg reached the mainland, one of its owners is reported to have said, we place absolute confidence in the Titanic. We believe the boat is unsinkable. 
He didn't mind that the ship had hit an iceberg. It was sailing across the North Atlantic at the time, but he was certain that everything would be fine. But by the time he made that announcement, the Titanic was already at the bottom of the ocean and 1,500 lives had been lost. What was considered one of mankind's greatest and most enduring accomplishments did not stand the test of time. In fact, it didn't even stand the test of its first voyage. People were shocked, of course, to hear about how quickly and how completely the ship's design had failed. Because by all appearances, it was strong enough to overcome any obstacle or threat that it might face. So it was a wake-up call when word arrived that the ship was gone. Just as it always is, when something that we consider unsinkable is proven to be more vulnerable than we realized. As we resume our study of the book of John this morning, we pick up in the middle of a chaotic and anxious and distressing scene. Jesus has been arrested. After sharing a Passover meal with his disciples, praying with them, spending time teaching them and walking them through the city to arrive in a garden where Jesus often went to pray and spend time with them, a mob arrived looking for him. Those who saw Jesus as a threat had assembled their forces, hundreds of them, as Bruce mentioned to us last week, and followed Judas to a place where he knew that they would find Jesus. And under the light of torches, they arrived ready to comb through the garden in search of their target. But they didn't have to. Before they even said a word, Jesus stepped forward. He knew what they had come for. And verse 4 of chapter 18 says that he knew all that would happen to him. Jesus knew all that the coming hours held for him. He could see it clearly in all of its terrible, agonizing glory. Yet when the sword-carrying mob came to seize him, he did not run. He didn't hide. He stepped into the light of their torches. As he faced the path that the Father had laid for him, a path that would lead to death, he stood firm. And alongside him, his friend Peter is there watching this scene unfold, and he can't handle it, as we saw last week. He draws his sword, and he aims to go down swinging. But before he can get very far, Jesus stops him. He heals the man that Peter has injured and sets him down with the question, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? As we saw last week, Jesus is the one in control, and he will not be deterred. And with that, he is bound and led away, leaving the disciples to wonder what in the world is happening. Peter and an unnamed disciple, who many scholars think is John himself, who wrote this book, follow at a distance. They see Jesus delivered to a man named Annas. We have not yet met in the book of John but not because he is unimportant. In fact, Annas was probably the most powerful political figure in ancient Judaism. Earlier in his life, he was the chief priest serving in the temple, and he served at that post from 6 to 15 AD. So by the time of Jesus' arrest, Annas has been officially retired for going on 20 years, but he maintained a considerable influence John tells us in verse 13 that he is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the man who is the current high priest in Jerusalem. In fact, Caiaphas is one of five of Annas' sons to hold the title of high priest after him. So by keeping the role and the title and the authority of the high priest's office close to himself, he has kept the authority of that position firmly in his grip. 
So even though Annas isn't the one with the title, he is the one with the power, giving the job to whomever he wants and keeping it in the family and pulling the strings from behind the scenes. So Jesus has been brought to the real seat of power, the real seat of Jewish power in this city where his accusers will decide what to do with them. Now, John reminds us that way back in chapter 11, they had already begun to plot for Jesus' death, and they had justified their wicked plot when Caiaphas said, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Their minds are made up already. Rather than risk Jesus' following getting any bigger and causing more of a disturbance, they would rather just do away with him here and now. They know what they want to do with Jesus already, and Jesus knows it too. He knows that Annas is the one who will sign his death warrant. So it's a tense scene, obviously. And meanwhile, Peter is outside in the courtyard, nervous. The one who, among all the disciples, was just swinging his sword to defend Jesus from these accusers, is now trembling with fear for his own life. He is at first barred from entering the courtyard, as we read. The other disciple who was there apparently had some relationship with Annas or someone in the house. John doesn't really focus on that, but it explains how he got in the door. But Peter is a stranger to these people, so he isn't allowed in. But a short time later, when he is given access, he hustles in, evidently curious and concerned for what is going on inside. He had the chance to walk away, but he didn't. He could have even said, they wouldn't let me in and gone home, but he didn't. Peter's love for Jesus is evident. His fear for what will happen to Jesus is what drives him to follow while most of the other disciples have run. That is something I think we should recognize. John has painted a picture for us here in chapter 18, alongside all the other gospel writers of a fearful night full of uncertainty, full of anger and scorn and hatred in which Jesus is hunted and captured by an angry mob. We can understand why most of the disciples fled. And it is commendable, or at least, I think, noteworthy, that Peter has come this far. Among all the disciples, he was the only one willing to fight the soldiers who had come to arrest Jesus. And now, while most of them have fled, he's there. But his courage fails in verse 17. A servant girl, probably younger than Peter and tasked with holding the door for visitors, asks him, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? It's not an accusation or a threat. John is careful to note for us that this question comes from a servant girl, basically the most non-threatening person Peter could have possibly talked to that night. In fact, Nobody there would have been surprised if Peter had just ignored her because it wasn't customary for a woman, let alone a servant, to address a man in public like this. She was not in a position of authority over Peter, but as Peter looks around the courtyard and sees Jesus being led inside in chains, his courage utterly fails. I am not, he says. He's gone from swinging a sword to wilting in fear before a servant girl. The late James Montgomery Boyce, who's a well-known pastor and theologian, writes, this is no miserable specimen chosen from among the ranks of Christ's worst followers. This is the best. 
Yet it is this one who fails, not only dreadfully, but speedily and with slight provocation. Among the masses of Christ's followers, Peter was one of the twelve chosen by Christ to join him. And traveling with him from town to town, seeing firsthand the authority and the divinity of Christ, hearing for himself Christ's announcement that God's kingdom had come. He is no mere bystander with a passing interest in Jesus. And among the twelve disciples, he was part of the innermost circle of Jesus' closest fellowship, chosen from among the twelve alongside James and John to accompany Jesus to witness his transfiguration. He saw for himself the radiant glory of Christ with his own eyes and heard with his own ears the voice of the Father declaring him to be his eternal Son. So as Peter tumbles down into fear and darkness, it is from a great height, from a place where he had a unique vantage point to see Christ clearly and to know him more deeply than anyone else. Yet when the question, the innocent question comes, aren't you one of this man's followers too? Peter withers, I am not. At the same moment, Jesus is inside, also being questioned. John tells us in verse 19 about his disciples and his teaching. First, the Jewish leaders who are interrogating Jesus want to know about his influence, so they ask about his followers. This is an important detail for us to observe. It reveals that their concern is not mainly to do with truth, but mainly to do with politics and power. They see the way that people respond to Jesus. They see the crowds that gather to hear him teach, and they fear that their own power will be compromised if he is allowed to carry on. And Jesus answers them, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. His point here in verse 20 is not that he's never had a private conversation or that he has never taught his disciples anything outside of a synagogue, but that he has not tried to hide anything. Everything that Jesus has said and done is public record. So he says, If you are really interested in the truth, go and ask the people who heard me teach. Ask them whether what I said is true. Jesus is not intimidated. And this is probably not the reaction that Annas was expecting. It seems like part of their plot against Jesus was to try intimidating him. So they sent a huge detachment of armed soldiers to arrest Jesus and to bring him bound in chains to Annas' house in the middle of the night. It isn't a fit of anger that's motivated this whole whole plan, but a strategy. It strikes me as a calculated move, one that's designed to try to make Jesus afraid. So he probably anticipated that Jesus would fold under the pressure, that he would confess some crime that Annas could condemn, and that he would be justified in demanding Jesus' life put an end to the whole problem. But despite all the theatrics, Jesus doesn't fold. He is not afraid. Instead, he doubles down. So Annas' officer slaps Jesus hard across the face. And what I think is another calibrated move, one designed to put Jesus in his place, to remind him that Annas has all the power and that Jesus' life is hanging on by a thread. The officer asks, is that how you answer the high priest? Surely now... Jesus will fall in line. 
but he doesn't. He is defiant and resolute. If what I have said is wrong, he says in verse 23, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I have said is right, why do you strike me? Jesus' words here remind Annas and all the officers who are there to hear this, that this trial is a sham and that they know it. It doesn't adhere to the high standards of the Jewish law, standards which Annas was responsible for upholding. According to that law, charges had to be corroborated by irrefutable evidence and by eyewitness testimony. Rulers were not free to condemn anyone that they wished, and they were specifically prohibited in law from wielding their authority without satisfying the requirements of the law. That is part of what made ancient Israel's law so unique among the nations of the ancient Near East. It restrained the authority of those in power so that they would not become tyrants. Jesus knows this, of course, and when he says, if what I have said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, he is reminding Annas of what he should already know. If I am a liar, prove it. If I am a blasphemer, prove it. If I am an insurrectionist, prove it. Bear witness about the charges that you aim at me, otherwise, why do you strike me? In other words, you are the lawbreaker here, Annas, and we both know it. Jesus is not backing down, and he is not afraid either. And with that, Annas realizes he's getting nowhere with Jesus. He will not be intimidated. He will not be bamboozled into convicting himself, and he will not recant. So Jesus is sent to Caiaphas, the one who will formally and publicly demand his life. It is a scene of magnificent bravery. Jesus knows that this man will sign his death warrant, yet he does not waver. That is the very essence of courage. In his influential book, Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton writes that courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. He that will lose his life, the same shall save it. It is not a piece of mere mysticism. No philosopher has ever expressed this romantic riddle with adequate lucidity, but Jesus embodied it wholly. Jesus did not fear what lay ahead. He was not afraid. He was prepared to lay down his life, both to take it up again and to bring with him all those given to him by the Father. He knew that the threat from Annas was real, very real. He knew that the devil was hard at work that very night, setting into motion plans that he had designed to try to stop the kingdom of God from advancing. Jesus knew everything that was at stake, and his courage did not fail. He did not crumble under the pressure. He was ready to die. But outside, Peter was not. Because it's the middle of the night, he is gathered with other onlookers around a fire where they are trying to keep warm. And as they're standing there, someone asks him, you also are one of this man's disciples, aren't you? And again, Peter says, I am not. And again, someone else asks him a third time, did I not see you in the garden with him? This guy recognizes Peter from just a couple of hours earlier when Jesus was arrested in the, gar- in the garden. And John even tells us that he was a relative of the man who Peter had injured when he started swinging his sword around. 
It's a detail that John includes, I think, to remind us. He wants to remind us of what happened just a few verses earlier. It wasn't long ago that Peter was so zealous for Christ, so passionate and willing to risk his own life because he wanted to be known as Jesus' disciple. And for the third time, Peter says no. And at that moment, a rooster crows. It's the fulfillment of Jesus' prediction that Peter would deny him, that he would fold under the pressure collapse in fear. Back in chapter 13, Peter had made some significant claims about his bravery. He said in chapter 13, verse 37, I will lay down my life for you rather than abandon you. And Jesus replies gently but honestly, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Jesus knew Peter was making promises that he was not strong enough to keep. His heart might have been in the right place, but when push came to shove, Peter would not be as brave as he thought. He, along with all the other disciples, would fall away, scattering from the danger of being associated with Jesus. Jesus knew that as well. He told all the disciples in chapter 16, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home, and will leave me alone. On the dark night when the forces of hell were unleashed, when the Son of God was seized and condemned and sentenced to death, all fell, all crumbled in fear except one. Jesus himself, who stood to face down death itself. Yet knowing they would scatter, knowing his closest friends would abandon him, Jesus called them anyway. Knowing that they would fall, he drew them to himself and planned to restore them afterward. Luke notes for us that Jesus said to Peter in chapter 22 of his gospel that Satan demanded to have you, Peter, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew that Peter would stumble, but he would never be lost. Because Jesus held him firm. Satan demanded to have him and the other disciples, and on that night he almost did it. But Jesus looked on each of them and said, This one is mine. You can't have him. And a day would come, Jesus knew that a day would come when Peter would carry the responsibility of leading, strengthening, and blessing the people of God without any fear at all. Jesus knew that day would come and that it would arrive not because of Peter's strength, not because of Peter's courage, but because of his own. Jesus had plans for Peter. So though he fell to fear, he did not fall to unbelief. He was held fast by the sovereign grace of Jesus Christ, who does not lose any of those given to him by the Father. All four gospel writers include Peter's tragic and dismal fall from grace, In some accounts, his denial of Christ is way more emphatic, such as in Matthew, where he began to invoke a curse on himself, we read, and to swear, to swear, I do not know the man. All four gospel writers considered Peter's failure an essential part of understanding Jesus and his life and mission and the gospel as a whole. But unlike Matthew and Mark and Luke, John relays these events to us in a unique way. 
What's unique about John's reporting on these events is that he intersperses what's happening inside. He bounces back and forth between the courtyard where Peter is and inside Annas' house where Jesus is being questioned. We know that John read the other Gospels before he wrote the Gospel of John. He saw how his friends described these events. And we also know that John is incredibly careful and thoughtful in the way that he compiles his account. The ordering and the structure of this scene is not incidental. So when he apparently goes out of his way, as he does here, to intersperse events happening inside and outside Annas' house at the same time, we should ask why. Like, what is John trying to get us to notice? I think that when we do that, we see some pretty important things that I think John wants us to pick up on. First, Christ calls the weak to do mighty things for his kingdom. It is an amazing thing to consider that Jesus knew that Peter would fall. He knew it. He knew this night would come. He knew exactly what Peter would say. He knew the hurtful way that Peter would abandon him, yet he called him anyway. And not only called him, but planned to give him a vital leadership role in the early church. He knew a day would come when Peter would deny that he even knew Jesus, let alone trusted him for salvation. From every earthly vantage point, this is a losing strategy. It's like considering a new employee that you're hiring to serve in a critical position in your company. But when you call all their references, every single one of them tells you this person is unreliable and hard to work with. You know that they've been fired from their last three jobs and that they never finished the training program that they were enrolled in in order to work in the field, but you hire them anyway. In that scenario, that person would probably get fired, and you probably would too. Nothing about Jesus' plan here makes sense, but he calls Peter anyway, because throughout Scripture, we see that that is what God does. He calls those who are unprepared, ill-equipped, and disengaged, and otherwise odd choices to carry important responsibilities and do mighty things in his kingdom. A survey of just a few examples here. He called Abraham when he was living as a pagan in a pagan nation to be the forefather of his people. He called David when he was only a child and the smallest in his household to be a warrior and a king. He called Jeremiah to be a prophet who will call nations and kings to repentance, even though he was only a young man with no status or authority of his own. And he called Saul, the marauding persecutor of the church, to be a missionary preaching the gospel of Christ to the nations. Over and over and over again, at every point in redemptive history, God is at work through the weak and the unlikely to accomplish his sovereign will. And when he does, there is no other option than to marvel at the majesty and the might of God himself who calls these people in grace. That's the whole point of Judges chapter 7, in which God sends the warrior Gideon to battle against the Midianites who had been oppressing his people. He tells Gideon, the people who are with you, the soldiers who are with you, are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. He says, you've got too many soldiers, and when you win with that many soldiers, you'll think that it was your strength that won you this victory. So he tells him to send a bunch of his soldiers home. But even after Gideon has cut his army by two-thirds, God says it is still too many. And so he eventually goes into battle, not with the 22,000 soldiers he started with, but with 
a, a meager force of only 300. And after they defeat the Midianites, there is no confusion at all about whether it was by their strength or by God's that they won. It is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that God uses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and what is weak in the world to shame the strong so that no one might boast in the presence of God. God will not share his glory with another. So he calls into service those whose success can only be accounted for because it was God who called them. God calls the weak to do mighty things in his kingdom, so he calls Peter. So that when Peter, forgiven by Christ, helps to establish the church in the first century, to live fearlessly proclaiming the gospel among people who would eventually demand his life, People would not marvel at his ingenuity or his winsomeness, but at the unrelenting, bottomless mercy of his Savior. John Calvin writes about Peter's denials. Now, here in this scene in chapter 18, at the voice of a maid and that unaccompanied by threat, he is confounded and throws down his arms. Such is a demonstration of the power of man. John Calvin saw all of us in Peter. He's like everyone in the kingdom of Christ, a good representative for each of us. Fallen, fearful, redeemed, and sent out in the power of God, not his own. Left to ourselves, we are not strong enough to carry the banner of Christ. We fall to temptation and fear and weariness like Peter did. But Christ beckons us to receive his strength and his forgiveness and to go forth in fearless service. Peter understood this for the rest of his life. He knew that he had been forgiven and made new. So when he wrote in 1 Peter about the precious blood of Christ that had ransomed him from sin and set him free to live without fear because of his utter confidence in Christ, he remembered this night. That is the message for us as we read about Peter's failure here in John 18. Our inadequacy does not disqualify us from serving the Lord. Your inadequacy, though it is real, don't mistake what we're saying here. Your inadequacy, though it is very real, does not disqualify you from service in the Lord's kingdom. Because God is the one calling, redeeming, restoring, and equipping people for service in his kingdom, our perspective is changed forever. All four gospel writers considered this scene and Peter's failure a necessary, necessary part of the story of Jesus' life and ministry because remembering it would keep people from forgetting who is truly worthy of honor and who they should put their deepest trust in. This passage helps us remember that though we fail, Christ never fails us. Peter's story of failure is a helpful one for all Christians. Even the most sanctified follower of Jesus, who has perhaps memorized whole books of Scripture, who are faithful in prayer and whose deepest passion in life is to serve the Lord, will fight against sin and struggle to overcome it. Peter had a closeness to Christ that almost no one else had. He saw with his own eyes things that others wish that they could have seen, yet he fell. And now the words, I am not, will haunt him for the rest of his life. When the question came, do you know Jesus? The question that Christians long to be answered, uh, long to be asked, rather, he didn't answer it. He stumbled. 
When I was in Little League growing up, uh, I was not a very good batter. Uh, I was a really, I was a terrible batter, actually. Uh, I got struck out a lot, and I got used to that. But there was something extra lame about getting struck out without swinging. Getting called out while you're just standing there holding the bat is just the worst. In this scene in John 18, Peter had a shot at making history. It was a moment teed up for a home run of faithfulness to Christ. If he had said, yes, I know him, I belong to him, I am his disciple, a student of God made flesh, and a subject in his kingdom of mercy, no matter what happens here tonight. But instead, he struck out on three straight pitches, fastballs right down the middle of the plate. He never even swung the bat. Meanwhile, inside, Jesus was facing the men who would deliver him up for torture and execution. And he declares, I have done everything in public. I have nothing to hide and no one to fear. Faced with death, he did not waver. His eyes were set on the cross or he would fully and finally atone for the sin that Peter was engaged in committing at the very same moment. But even when his people fail him, he does not fail. Even when we fail him, when we stumble and fall to temptation and fear, he does not stumble. His strength is insurmountable. His courage to carry out the will of the Father, indomitable. When the disciples scattered in fear for their lives, he was at the very same moment giving his life to save them. When they abandoned them, he grasped them tightly that none of those given to him would be lost. And the same is true for each of us. Though we fail, he does not. Though we waver, he never will. This is something we must remember when we are racked with shame for the sin that we cannot seem to conquer, though our heart is truly in it. When we are haunted by the failures of our past, as Peter was, surely for the rest of his life, we cling to the precious blood of Christ, which testifies to us that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who cling to him by repentance and faith. Christ never fails. We should praise him, therefore, from the bottom of our hearts because his steadfast love is our salvation. And lastly, though other Christians fail, Christ never fails us. Most often, I think, when we read this passage here in John 18 or any of the Gospels that relate to us the events uh, on this night, when we listen to sermons about Peter's denials, we find ourselves in them, as we have just considered. We think of the times that we have failed to honor Christ by faithfully proclaiming him as our Savior, or when we have stayed silent out of fear for our own safety or prosperity. But I think one other way that this passage is an encouragement to us is by reminding us that our greatest hope and our firmest foundation is in Christ, not in anyone or anything else. Though Peter would go on to be a leader in the church, a titan of faith, and a trustworthy apostle of Christ, this passage reminds us that he is imperfect. He's human, just like us. The best he can do is point to the one who is perfect. And it is unwise to ask him to do any more than that. Yet we do it all the time. We put people on pedestals. We expect for perfection from people who can't live up to that expectation. And when the curtain 
is pulled back, we realize that we've put too much stock in things that could never have done what they promised or what we expected from them, and we are devastated to realize the truth. And people break our trust when circumstances rob us of joy, when brothers and sisters in faith betray us, we are made to realize that none of those things are unsinkable. The world is full to the top of sinful people. It is full of death and frustration, so we should not expect perfection from it or from anyone in it apart from Jesus Christ. We are prone to wander, prone to sin, prone to selfishness, every one of us. That is what comes most naturally to people who struggle in the conquest of sin in our daily lives. But there is one who never wanders, one who is not selfish, one who is perfect. One who never falls, who never fails, and who conquers the death that we so fear. One of the things that this passage helps us to remember is that even though Peter would go on to become a hero of the faith and a legend among the apostles, he is still just a man. And on his very best day, he will always be the man who was overwhelmed by cowardice. Though God called him to service, and though he accomplished great things, it was never Peter who is worthy of praise, as we've already seen. So if we put all our confidence in people like Peter, or in circumstances like his zeal for Christ that we saw in the garden, we are setting ourselves up for supreme disappointment. Though we are rightly dismayed when high-profile Christians are revealed to be mired in hidden sin, or when abuses in the church long covered up are brought to light, We are shocked and saddened when our trust in a fellow believer is destroyed, and such situations might drive us to ask whether we can trust anyone at all. Circumstances like these should make us grieve, and they do, but they should not cause us to lose hope. This passage stands to remind us that even those whom Christ called into closest earthly fellowship failed to live like it when they saw him surrounded by soldiers and bound with chains. Their fear got the better of all of them, but it never got the better of Jesus. When we encounter sin, which we know we will, among Christians, our brothers and sisters in faith, when we face heartbreak as we know we will, living in a broken world, we we must remember, we must remember that it is Jesus who never fails. He is the one. He stands where others fall, succeed where others disappoint, and abides where others scatter in fear. This is our Savior. We put our trust in Him. He has proven Himself worthy of it. He has given His life to make us new and to give us new life. And we watch Him work. We receive His grace and rejoice to see others receive it as well. We praise Him, the one, the one who is truly worthy of it. And we put our highest and deepest trust and hope in him because he never fails. Would you pray with me this morning? God, be with us today, we ask, and cause us to remember the fearlessness of your son in the face of death. Press upon us the truth of his love, his grace, and his courage, so that we will find in him a joy that no earthly circumstance can rob us of. We praise you today, and we look to you in hope, trusting that by your grace, you are at work in our lives today. Draw us close.
hold us tight, and give us confidence to live without fear for the sake of your glory and your renown. We ask all this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ.